You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. The heart of where innovation, money, and power collide in Silicon Valley and beyond. This is Bloomberg Technology with Caroline Hyde and Ed Ludlow. I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Caroline Hyde's off today. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up on the program, reports that OpenAI CEO Sam Altman will meet with Samsung chip executives just days after our report on his plans to raise billions of dollars for AI chip factories. Everything you need to know ahead. Plus, Sony scrapping its $10 billion deal for India's Z after two years of drama and delay. Details on the CEO stalemate that led to the collapse. And a big week for big tech. We break down what to expect from the benchmark's main drivers as they gear up to report earnings results all that and so much more there is a big story happening in the world of technology that we continue to track and that is OpenAI CEO Sam Altman. Apparently, he'll meet with Samsung chip executives in Seoul later this week. That all according to Korea's May Il. It's all about a discussion around AI chip production and supply. Joining us with more is Bloomberg's Ian King. And I mean, Ian, the timing of this report is interesting because Friday, uh, we, myself, Dina Bass, reporting that the focus of Sam Altman's initiative to raise tens of billions of dollars is for chip capacity, factory fabs, call it what you will, and now Samsung. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do this, if you're serious about doing this, then you have to speak to the Koreans, right? Obviously, a lot of the focus is on TSMC. They are the market leader. But if there's a strong number two, it's not Intel, it's Samsung. They have the money, they have the resources, and they have the technology. So I think what's interesting here, Ian, is that there's always a big focus on TSMC because it's the big market incumbent, right? It's the big market leader. Samsung is a heavyweight in the market for contract manufacturing chips in and of its own right. That's right. I mean, everybody focuses on them. Oh, they're the, the memory guys. You know, memory is a, a commodity. Uh, you know, great. It's a big business. But no, they are the second biggest contract manufacturer. They have had in the past big customers like NVIDIA, like Apple. Um, they have some serious capabilities, and they are way ahead of where the third guys, uh, they're talking about it, Intel, would be at this point. So, you know, the basics of the story we reported Friday is it's a lot of money because chip factories cost a lot of money to make and a very long time to make. But it's this anxiety that in the future, the supply of AI-specific chips 
chips won't be there to meet the demand. It's different from what we kind of previously reported, which was this idea, well, OpenAI wants to take on some of its biggest suppliers, like NVIDIA. It doesn't seem to be a design of their own chip. It's just guaranteeing that when the time comes, you can get your hands on what we call day-to-day -day AI accelerators. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Uh, OpenAI, NVIDIA, AMD, all of these chip designers have a shared interest, right? A, a shared goal. They believe that AI is going to be utterly pervasive in the world economy and in technology. And if you, according to some of the projections, it's going to need more chips, more of a certain type of chip, a very high-end logic chip, than we are currently on course to make. If you believe that scenario, then we need to start pouring concrete. So Sam Altman's visit to Korea and uh, Seoul is according to local reports from Mayil, but we'll continue to trace that story of Bloomberg's Ian King. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, another big story overnight. Sony and Z Entertainment have officially called off a planned $10 billion media merger in India after two years of drama and delay. For more on what happened, I want to bring in Bloomberg's Alex Webb in London. I mean, we've done so much reporting, Alex, around the, the idea this is, wasn't going to happen. The sticking point ultimately seems to have been who would have run this merged entity had it been closed. Yes, that's very much at the core of the issue. The CEO of Z, who is the son of the, uh, of the founder, uh, he has been caught up in a regulatory investigation, you can word this very carefully, for allegedly faking the recovery of loans to cover private financing deals by its founder. These are allegations, of course, that he denies. Initially, there was an interim ruling saying he was not allowed to hold directorships. That was then subsequently reprieved, like t uh, he was still allowed to hold this CEO position. But the investigation is ongoing. Sony appears to think that this regulatory overhang is a risk. They would only happy, according to the reporting, to close the deal if he was not leading the new company. The family would have owned about 4% of the new company. Uh, Sony would own 50, close to 51%. So Sony very much is the bigger fish here, and they weren't able to reach an agreement. The deal has fallen apart. A lot of our audience around the world, Alex, are going to say, why is Sony interested in doing a media deal in India with Z? And the reality is that it's just a battleground for eyeballs in the world's most populous country. Just explain what Z is. It, it, my understanding is it has a pretty decent catalogue of content, but financially it's a bit shaky. Yeah, it, it is in slightly... Um, the, I suppose the challenge is in India, it's just one of scale because of price sensitivity. So Z, in this deal with Sony, they would have ended up with 75 channels, as you say, a huge back catalogue. But without that scale, it, it is quite hard to make the economics add up. You hear plenty of people say, not least Tim Cook, that India is where China was maybe six, eight, even ten years ago. Uh, that means that it, it could be quite attractive in a few years' time. Right now, it isn't necessarily hyper-attractive, but people are trying to get in on the ground floor, ensure they have a decent market position so that if the wealth that many expect to arrive does finally arrive in India, then you have quite a big market share. They would have had the combined Sony Z 37% market share by some estimates. Disney, which is merging its 
its local business with Reliance, a local company. Reliance will actually be the biggest shareholder in that new entity. Would have had 24, is going to have 24% market share. So having gone from potentially a more dominant position of that 37%, now the, the separate Sony and Z are actually likely to be smaller than this new Disney Reliance entity. The, the streaming market in India was a story in 2023, and it seems like it's going to be a story in 2024 as well. Bloomberg's Alex Webb out of London. Thank you very much. Uh, earnings season is here. We are excited. This week, we get fourth quarter results from Netflix, Tesla, IBM, and Intel. While the market is super focused on what on earth happens with rates and the global economy in 2024, joining us now, Janet Mui, head of market analysis at RBC Bruin Dolphin. And... To look forward, you have to kind of look back. You know, the Magnificent Seven, those mega caps, accounted for so much of the index performance in 2023. And we go into this earnings season saying they're probably going to account for the majority of profit growth as well. Is that how you look at it? Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. I think that's entirely likely. Uh, as you mentioned, if you look back last year, uh, the Magnificent Seven, it is 30% of the S&P, but drove two-thirds of the return last year. I do think that the enthusiasm for the Magnificent Seven will continue, given that I think actually a lot of investors are just about neutral or even slightly underweight uh, at the moment in terms of equities. So I think uh, in terms of the momentum, that is great. The S&P 500 reached new highs. And I think the flows could be coming from the cash allocations from institutions or retail investors. And I do think that... Uh, so far, if you look back, not just last year, but in the past five years, right, the uh, competitive annual growth rates of these mega cap tech companies has been great, you know, ranging from 15% to uh, even 30% for the EPS growth. So I do think that this earnings uh, expectation is likely to be justified. They will still continue to deliver growth, of course, supported by these structural tailwind that is artificial intelligence. You have to differentiate between stock performance and then actual growth and earnings, right? I think the, the, the average estimate or the Bloomberg intelligence forecast is across the Mag Magnificent Seven, EPS growth of 46%, which is like slight deceleration from 53% in the prior quarter. The only subsector that's comparable is utilities. And we know everything that's kind of going on in energy markets and geopolitically globally. What is it that the Magnificent Seven are able to do to keep boosting the bottom line that the broader tech sector cannot? Well, I think uh, they're both cyclical and structural aspects. In terms of cyclical, we're actually quite constructive on the semiconductor sector. Uh, that's primarily because there is evidence that that uh, infrastructure cycle has come to an end. Uh, particularly, if you look at the uh, guidance from TSMC, there's uh, further evidence that uh, the destocking is over, and you're starting to see that year-on-year -year pick up in the global semiconductor orders. I think uh, one that is lagging is probably auto semiconductors. There's still some inventory drag there, but generally, if you talk about the uh, hardware upgrade for phones, uh, that's a three-year cycle, and I think we're starting to get a recovery from there. And uh, so I think the cyclical uplift for those companies would be pretty good. And uh, structurally, of course, it's the artificial intelligence uh, boom uh, that that to us is still pretty much in the early stages. You're talking about, first of all, the picks and shovels play, which is likely to continue doing well. But broader uh, speaking, I think it is going to 
uh, broaden out to the other applications, which is still in the very early stages. And there's this creating this completely new demand for these uh, high performance um, AI chips, for instance. That, that makes for an interesting week. You said that your firm are kind of constructive on semis. You know, the one that we're watching closely on the show is Intel Thursday, and we'll speak to the CEO on Friday. But within that, you also have Texas Instruments, which is kind of the other end of the excitement gauge, right? More analog devices, a much wider range of end markets. Do you care more about learning about the health of the end markets or the forward-looking commentary on how AI is going to change the game for these companies? To be honest, I think it's both really. So um, for the more boring kind of uh, areas of semiconductors, it was really dragged by the uh, inventory destocking for uh, phones, for the laptops, for example, because we had such a boom during the pandemic, right? So as I said, there's just more evidence of that coming to an end. And so the next cyclical outlet could last one and a half years plus. So I think that's pretty exciting. So I think a bit of that is the, about that is very important. And of course, the AI commentary will be very important, right? I think investors will be continuing looking for evidence that this oldest growth is indeed very robust and will continue to justify the, the share price. Uh, Janet, we're about 15 minutes away from the close of trading in Europe. Something interesting happened today. As it stands, ASML, the chip equipment maker, is going to leapfrog Nestle you see just at the right-hand bottom of your screen, to, to become the third most valuable European stock behind LVMH, Novo Nordis. And it got me thinking about European tech. The SML story is caught up in the geopolitics of the US-China relationship and in the context of AI. But with ASML jumping up the value chain, how do you view them and how do you view European tech in 2024? We actually um, we have ASML on our uh, individual equity list, so we are constructive on the long-term prospect for ASML, primarily because it is a monopoly for uh, these advanced chip making. And I think that for European tech, arguably there's not a lot of choices if you look at the um, mega cap tech space. So I think uh, uh, ASML is one of the few options there that would uh, deliver promising long-term growth prospects. And I think in terms of the geopolitics, I think the China risk is in the background, but I think a large part of it has already been digested by investors. A, a lot of bad news have already been passed. We already know that they're not going to send the uh, uh, high-end chips to China, right? And I think uh, the, there has been some sensitivity to the stock price, but we have already digested it. And I think the long-term demand, the structural demand globally ex-China is still very exciting. And I think uh, that may not be fully reflected in the stock price yet. And we, we do have a continual constructive view on uh, ASML uh, and generally the uh, global chip manufacturing sector. Uh, Janet, there are times on this program where I sound like a bit of a broken record, but I'm going to say the same thing again. We're looking at the Fed and we're looking at rates because higher rates discount the present value of future cash flows in the context of big tech. You know, there is an interesting inflation read happening around the world. And there's a question in the market of whether we are getting our rates expectations wrong. Are we getting it wrong, Janet? I think there is a possibility, given that uh, we initially expect uh, six, I mean, the market expects six, and then now they have to trim it to five rate cut expectation. But interestingly, during this period of uh, recalibrating interest rate expectation, 
the markets continue to go up in the U.S. I think um, it's not saying that these interest rate cut expectations doesn't matter. It matters, but for these uh, quality companies, for these mega cap companies, I think uh, they demonstrated they actually managed to do well last year in a rising interest rate and bond yield environment. And I think uh, we may get it wrong, right? It could be two rate cuts, three rate cuts. We don't know, but generally we saw that rates have peaked and that provides a stable anchor for investors. And it's still more likely than not we are going to see a couple of rate cuts this year. So I think uh, in general, investors are still very much focused on this soft lending direction, which we saw more of you know, data confirmation, especially from last Friday's University of Michigan Confidence Survey. You, the best of data, right? Lower inflation expectation, higher consumer confidence. So I think, I think the soft lending uh, direction is actually driving more of that market movement compared to that rate cut expectation. Hey, there's something refreshing in the honesty of saying we just don't know. Janet Mui, Head of Market Analysis at RBC Bruin Dolphin. Great to have you on the program. Now, coming up here on Bloomberg Technology, Elon Musk's AI company gets a $500 million boost. Got those details coming up next. This is Bloomberg Technology. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Okay, time for Talking Tech. And in the news, NVIDIA co-founder Jensen Huang celebrated the Chinese New Year with staff during a trip to China. His first in four years, a low-key tour that coincided with, frankly, growing concerns about Beijing's ability to get around U.S. chip restrictions. And speaking of which, as firms ramped up investment to try and get around those restrictions, China's imports of chip-making machines jumped 14% last year to almost 40 billion U.S. dollars, the second largest amount on record since 2015. Plus, the U.S. Supreme Court asked the Biden administration to respond to an appeal by Elon Musk, who is seeking to overturn an agreement he reached with the SEC to have his social media posts about Tesla screened 
in advance, the Twitter sitter, if you remember. And in other Musk news, his artificial intelligence company, XAI, has secured $500 million in commitments from investors, the end goal being $1 billion, that all according to Bloomberg sources. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Katie Roof for more. And Katie, you and I reported this story together, and let's get right to it. After we published the story, Elon Musk said on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, that this is fake news. But what are the details that we reported? Sure, yeah. So it's not clear what part of the story he's denying, but a number of sources have told us that there have been conversations about a new fundraising round. There's actually even been a filing about this, uh, that they are seeking roughly a billion dollars for XAI, uh, his his uh, AI platform. And we've heard that they've received maybe 500 million in commitments so far. But to be clear, these are what I would call soft commitments because the valuation is still being set. Uh, they have discussed numbers that include 15 billion, 20 billion, but they actually haven't decided. And so it's possible that's what he's alluding to here is that uh, the valuation is, hasn't been set in stone. You know, what I heard from my sources, what you heard, and, and Lizette Chapman, who we reported this with, heard as well, is like, there's a lot of interest of getting in on this round and investing in a Musk-led company. What's interesting to me is like, a billion dollars doesn't really seem that much. If you look at some of the, the vast sums that other leading makers of LLMs and generative AI tools have raised, how do these things normally shake out, right? It's a, it's a number of weeks. Uh, the, the rounds are often oversubscribed. Sure, and so the, the target size of a round can and often does change uh, a lot of times. Usually it's actually not completely set until they know the valuation because it's hard to know, you know, if you don't know the share price, it's hard to know uh, what people are going to pay and how much, you know, the, how much they're going to invest. So uh, we could see the number go up and we could also see the number go down. Uh, it's also possible they'll do another round in a few months at a different share price. So. Uh, I wouldn't see this as an end goal that they'll only raise a billion dollars. They could someday raise many billions. Ultimately, we know the aim was to raise money and up to a billion dollars because of a regulatory filing that Musk and XAI made. There's two interesting parts here. One, the X Corp, or X, the company formerly known as Twitter investors, seem to be those most likely to participate. And one element that we reported, instead of getting equity, something being discussed is having access to compute in lieu of equity, which is an interesting uh, situation to, for an investor to find themselves in. Sure. Right now, you know, obviously, there's it's very competitive to get in on the next uh, big AI uh, business, and so anything they can do to um, leverage their technology that could be used maybe for other startup investments that uh, investors are making, or uh, you know, help you know potential strategic investors. You know, we have relationships with Microsoft and OpenAI, for example. Um, anything that um, any sort of partnerships that add value value to a company could you know, be mutually beneficial for XAI. All right, Bloomberg's Katie Roof, one of the co-bylines with me on that one. It's a big week for technology earnings, Netflix, Tesla, IBM, and Intel towards the end of the week. But there's still a debate about what the Fed will or will not do in the context of when they'll cut rates 
if they'll cut rates and how deeply they'll cut rates, and at the same time, still a debate about the strength of the global economy, soft landing here in the US versus entering into a recession. Same stuff as last year. We carry on the conversation. That reflected kind of in the movement in yields as well. US 10-year just below 4.1%. It is an election year. And my goodness, did that show itself over the weekend. Let's turn to politics. Ron DeSantis dropping out of the race on X in a video interesting his choice to do that on that platform. Let's go out to New Hampshire and join Kaylee Lyons, who's live on the ground ahead of that primary. Uh, Kaylee, what did you make of the DeSantis timing, the announcement, but also specifically choosing X as the platform to make that announcement? Well, Ed, the timing certainly was interesting as he just last week came in second in Iowa and had been saying he was focusing his energy and resources on South Carolina, but still was going to compete in New Hampshire. And before we even got to primary day, now he's out of the race. It does seem like a fitting end, though, that this ultimately came on that platform, because remember, it was also on X that DeSantis launched his candidacy in the first place in the first place through spaces in which it was a little glitchy and they tried to say that they broke the Internet, but it didn't really seem like it went off without a hitch. And then in this video, yes. Yesterday, announcing the end of his campaign, essentially what he said was if there was something he could have done to have a more favorable outcome, more campaigning, more interviews, he would have done so. But he did not just see a path to victory. So that makes tomorrow the first in the nation primary all the more interesting because now it really is a two-person race between former President Donald Trump, who is the frontrunner, and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. And the polling we're getting, the latest this morning shows Trump is leading Haley by a pretty significant margin. Depending on what poll you look at, we're talking 19 points uh, in the Suffolk University and Boston Globe poll or 18 points in the Monmouth University Washington Post poll. And what is interesting about that poll is it actually shows that four voters who were going to support DeSantis, keeping in mind he was polling in the low single digits here in New Hampshire, so it wasn't that much of a factor anyway, but those voters are twice as likely to say that their second choice is Trump. So the thinking goes, now that DeSantis is out of the race, the vast majority of those votes he would have gotten will be going to the former president. Uh, Bloomers, Kaylee Lyons, part of the big team on the ground there in New Hampshire, really looking forward to your coverage. Be sure to tune into the team out in New Hampshire. Thank you so much. Look, let's move on to the election, but specifically focus on misinformation, because even as AI tools have been made to make it easier to create false content, social media giants have become reluctant to step in to counter it. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Anna Edgerton, who's been writing about this for Bloomberg this morning. That's where we stand. It's an election year. It's easier than ever to create fake content or misinformation. And the approach from a policy perspective of these social media companies and their platforms is the main focus of your story. That's right. I mean, what it seems like these social media companies have decided is that it's hard to decide what's true. And that's especially the case when it comes to political information that can be very opinionated in some cases. They've gotten burned in the past for trying, you know, for example, during the, the COVID pandemic, they were trying to respond in real time to changing health guidance. And it was very hard to monitor information, to curtail misinformation in that environment. Going into an election year, they're saying, we don't want to be the arbiters of political truth. We're just going to let content be on, the, uh, be on the platform. We'll take down what's illegal, what violates our policy, but we want to have a more open debate and allow more room for Americans to express their political opinions. Uh, let's go specific then. You know, I think back to 2020 when I was on the road for that election, the micro focus on policy for the Facebook platform and Instagram versus policy for X. What are some of the key 
grounds that they have set out, if any? Well, you know, it's an easy call, for example, when you have a post that says, you don't actually have to vote on election day, you can vote the following day. That's not true. It's interfering with an election. That is not allowed on any platform. But then you have other information that could make claims about a candidate that is, in many cases, allowed. Meta platforms even allows paid advertisements to, to express things that aren't true. And as this comes to, as you said, you know, an environment where you have generative AI making it ever more easy to create content that's not true, we could have just a flood of information that makes it really hard for voters to parse what's real and what's not. All right, Bloomberg's Anna Edgerton with a very significant look ahead to this year's election in the context of social media. Let's keep the conversation going with Mark Joblanowski, Managing Partner, Chief Technology Officer at DSP, DS Political, a digital advertising company for democratic candidates and progressive causes, which has come up with its own ad targeting technology. And, and Mark, thank you for your time here on Bloomberg Technology. Let's just set the scene. How do you see social media as a battleground for this election cycle in 2024. Thank you for having me. Um, this is going to be an unbelievably consequential presidential election, and it is going to be more difficult for citizens to understand what is true and not based on the platforms, uh, social media platforms, uh, regulations, and takedown policies for content. So when you bring in the generative AI capabilities uh, that is widespread now, with uh, the high stakes campaigns uh, that we're going to see this year, it really is going to be uh, a new frontier for campaigns to have to deal with this new type of misinformation. We've, we're showing a chart right now which, which sets out pretty clearly where Americans go to consume their news. The source of that data is the Pew Research Center. We're focused so much on X, formerly known as Twitter, but Facebook is, is a big, big uh, platform here, 30% if Pew is to be believed. How do you view the safety of the Facebook platform? When I say Facebook, we're talking about Facebook.com and the Facebook app. Yeah, I think Facebook has, uh, as well as other platforms, really pulled back a lot of the sensible protections that they put into place after the January 6th insurrection and during the COVID pandemic. Some of these protections still exist in the paid media space, but on the organic side, you really are having a world where they're not wanting to police what's true or not anymore. And that really could pose uh, some serious threats. The news peg is DeSantis choosing to drop out of the race uh, in a video that was posted on X first before it was posted anywhere else. You know, you largely are, are on the Democratic uh, side of this election and debate, but, but do you see any clear strategic difference in how GOP candidates and that party use social media versus the Democratic Party? Well, you've seen uh, Twitter X really welcome back uh, a lot of people that had previously been banned from the platform and creating this safe, you know, free speech haven that really is anything goes. And you have a certain type of candidate that is going to embrace uh, messaging on a platform that is that open versus uh, on the other side of the aisle. And so I think X is a really great example of a platform that was trying to do the right thing and then under new ownership had a change of heart and decided to uh, really just let the, you know, the floodgates open. There's the tech and policy side of this. So Meta's view, and you can see it in Anna Edgerton's stories, that they lead the industry 
in their review of content and safety. Elon Musk has disclosed that X got rid of the election integrity team for reasons that he's put out there. And then there's the political side of it. In other words, the political pressure these companies are under from DC. How do you view that tension? Well, you're seeing uh, certain Republican lawmakers really try and take uh, a view that any sort of content um, moderation is censorship that is detrimental to the Republican Party. And so you are seeing subpoenas and uh, you're seeing just hugely burdensome requests from members of Congress trying to put a stop to uh, uh, the platforms uh, preventing fake information from getting out there. So really what I worry about are uh, generative AI-created likenesses of campaigns, uh, candidates, and what is going to be able to be ultimately proven or disproven about what is said with them. And the real issue is not going to be probably as much on the top of the ticket where you're seeing a lot of uh, you know, capability and capacity to combat uh, real-time information with trackers and video cameras that are always on both yourself and the opponent. But one step down below that where it's really still a consequential election, but you don't have the same resources to ultimately fact check and disprove something that is going viral online that may or may not be true now. Mark, we have 30 seconds. How is your technology going to make the ads you do in support of Democratic candidates safe and clear? We make sure that we're reviewing the content of the ads that we run for uh, factual information, uh, making sure that we're working with only uh, people that we know who are actually purchasing the ads. We make sure that we are working uh, with uh, all of the state and local regulatory environments, which has become increasingly com complex. And ultimately, we try and make that in a, a turnkey package that allows Democratic candidates and causes to uh, run effective media campaigns. All right, Mark Jablonowski, Managing Partner, Chief Technology Officer at DS Political. Thank you for your time on the show. Now, keeping an eye on shares of Rumble, the video platform, jumping 18, 20%, now up 26%. Biggest intraday jump since March of last year after announcing a partnership with Barstool Sports for advertising and cloud services. This is interesting in the context of how many eyeballs these video platforms, slightly more conservative, right-leaning, uh, Rumble may get in the course of 2024. That stock up 26%. Now, coming up on the program, we're going to be speaking with former deputy director of the NSA, George Barnes, about his new VC role and investing in earlier stage cyber firms. More on that next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We have reports of an enormous fluffy pink monster strutting its stuff through downtown. Fluffy bird in downtown? Weird. Um, let's switch the setting to something more calming. That was an AI-generated piece of voice content from Eleven Labs, a startup that uses artificial intelligence to replicate voices in more than 24 languages, which just raised a new round of funding that places the two-year-old company's valuation at more than a billion dollars. The company said today that it raised $80 million in funding led by the venture fund Andreessen Horowitz, as well as Sequoia, Smash Capital, and SV Angel. The company has raised $101 million today. Now, former Deputy Director of the NSA, George Barnes, has a new job, President of the Cyber Practice at VC firm Red Cell Partners. This makes him the latest ex-government official to join the tech world, is investing in defense and security technology startups, has real momentum right now. And I'm delighted to say George George Barnes joins us now to talk more about his new position. Uh, This is happening, this kind of move from the public to private sector, there are concerns shared by both about cyber and other threats we face in 2024. Uh, Welcome to the program. Why did you make this move? Thanks. Uh, Well, I'm really great to be here, Ed. Um, So number one, I spent my whole adult life in national security. Uh, At the NSA, I was there 36 and a half years, uh, the last six and a half of which I was deputy director. And that gave me a unique knowledge and position on what's happening in our world. the threats that are posed against us, uh, most of which, many of which are cyberborne now. Um, I, my job was to try to understand the nature of those threats from foreign adversaries, and then also to help position NSA to defend against those, and not just NSA, but our nation. And so coming out of that experience and figuring out what to do next, I wanted to stay engaged. Uh, I'm an engineer by education and an initial trade in my career, and so I like the fact of uh, the order of building things, being involved in emerging tech has always been something that I've reveled in with respect to my NSA career because that's the only way we stayed viable is to really stay at that bleeding edge of technology. So the combination of emerging tech, my experiences, and then knowing uh, Grant for Standig for many years at Red Cell and knowing the platform he's creating, the culture he's establishing, and the connections in areas that really matter, healthcare, defense, national security across the board, uh, cybersecurity, as we all know, is a big deal. Uh, The the threat has been made clear by the events of the weekend. Microsoft, uh, whose shares are down three-tenths of a percent in the session, disclosing that a Russia-linked group was able to get access to a small percentage of Uh, employee emails. I find this so interesting because, one, it is a nation-state actor as the threat. But number two, Microsoft is the most valuable company in the world, and they are still vulnerable. What do you make of that? I think uh, what we all have to realize is, number one, Russia is extremely sophisticated. They have three different services, the SBR, the GRU, and the FSB, 
all training their sites on things like Microsoft, because Microsoft is a global company. Uh, they and China expend many, many resources with highly sophisticated people, tools, and techniques. They have, they will continue to find fissures and vulnerabilities in any globally used operating system or capability. And so while it's bad, uh, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, I remember at NSA, we really tried to focus on identifying such vulnerabilities and tipping off Microsoft when we found them because collectively we wanted our security to be as good as it could be. But we're always going to find weaknesses. You know, Microsoft's cyber practice is a $20 billion a year or security practice, $20 billion a year business. JP Morgan analysts have this note out saying that this could be an example of some of Microsoft's competitors getting a bit of a leg up in offering their services. Um, you are now in the investment world. How do you apply the events of the weekend to your thesis going forward and which startups you want to target? Sure. So number one, we have many companies that are providing cybersecurity services. We have, of course, all of our companies that are globally distributed and providing services, IT and communication services around the world. Um, cybersecurity is something that is going to be a continuous um, struggle, really, for our society. It's not something we can fix and be done. And so my effort here at Red Cell will be looking at what are those areas that have been underserved or unappreciated, where are combination punches that we can deliver with new companies, but also new companies joined up with existing companies to bring extra differentiating horsepower to problems that continue to manifest themselves with every passing day. There are many startups out there working on all sorts of tools. The, the common message that I get is uh, the threat actors have the same access to AI technology that we do in building the defense. Um, how will you use your experience at the NSA to kind of help them on the strategy side, build out a business, think about how they're thinking about the threats? One of the, the neat things that I am able to bring is the mindset of hunting. Uh, so NSA is both intelligence and cybersecurity. So part of my role at NSA was trying to learn the, the psyche of trying to penetrate foreign adversary systems. And so bringing that psyche it's very hard to defend. It's much easier to attack. <clears throat> and so bringing that experience, looking at things from a different angle, understanding how to align talent with different perspective is uh, something that I think I bring and I'm hoping to bring. We have a broad landscape of very highly technical people in government, in industry. And so how, how can we bring to them together in different ways with different experiences that I bring to the table? They call him the hunter, George Barnes, president of Red Cell Partners <laughs> Cyber Practice. Thank you for your time here. Tensions brewing for Apple as developers decide not to dive headfirst into the Vision Pro. Plus, three of the world's most popular streaming services, Netflix, YouTube, and Spotify, already signaling they won't be enabling their iPad apps to run on the Vision Pro. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman has the latest in the latest edition of Power On. And I noticed over the weekend, Mark, you were tallying all of the Vision Pro specific apps, but also noting that many iPad apps run on it. It's just, it's more complicated and intense than, than it should be, right? 
It's, a, it's an interesting situation that Apple's created for the Vision Pro. So there's basically three types of applications. You can run uh, your existing iPad apps, right? You can run your existing iPhone apps, or you can run new native applications created for the Vision Pro operating system, Vision OS. So you're going to have about a million iPad and iPhone apps. They'll run in the system, they'll float as a window, but they're not optimized. For the price of the device, what you really want are applications that are completely native. And so far, it seems there's going to probably be between 250 and 400 native Vision OS apps at launch. Now, you can compare that to the 2,000 iPad apps they had at the launch of the iPad App Store or the 500 iPhone apps they had at the launch of the original App Store back in 2008. But for 2024, having only a few hundred native apps, that's not so significant. And if you look at which applications are going to be launching from the get-go, a lot of them are from independent developers. These are not established applications, but you're also getting some core apps from Microsoft, from Slack, from Zoom, from Cisco's WebEx. Uh, you have a few apps for augmented reality. There's a cool app from jCrew. There's an app from Lowe's where you can sort of design uh, where you want furniture right. in your home. But like you said, this is an entertainment device from the get-go. That's at least how Apple's portraying it. In missing YouTube, Netflix, and Spotify from the get-go, that's not that's not great. And I right. think it underscores some of the tensions right. you're seeing between Apple and developers lately. Bloomberg's Mark Gurman with the latest power on. Thank you. That does it for B-Tech. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.